This is John DeFalb from John Sandow's Bookshop in London. Today I would like to welcome to our podcast series Emily Mayhew. Emily has been a regular customer at Sandow's for many years. She's local in a sense, by which I mean that she works at Imperial College, where she is historian-in-residence in the Department of Bioengineering. So she is both scientist and historian, which means she brings a historical perspective to scientific developments. Although an academic, she has written a trio of books for the general reader about the history of wounds in warfare, their medical and social treatment. She is extremely good at putting across complex, often technical matters, and we are proud to give her this platform to talk about her new book, The Four Horsemen, War, Pestilence, Famine, Death. And when I tell you that those stirring opening bars to black beauty were selected by her, you may be less surprised to hear that the book is more upbeat than its apocalyptic title suggests. Indeed, the book's subtitle is And the Hope of a New Age. I didn't set out to write a book called The Four Horsemen. I set out to write what was then an untitled book about the most significant threats to humanity in our time as I saw them. And I work at Imperial College in London, where we mostly do science, technology and medicine. So that was the landscape that I was surveying. And I started, as I always start when I write books, with a large piece of A3 paper and a felt-tip pen. And I started to list the threats as I saw them and to add some detail to each one. And very quickly, those, those threats, the list of threats, sorted themselves out into four categories. And the more I worked, the more detail I added, the more I looked for, for current research to add to the categories, the more those categories firmed up and strengthened. And at some point I looked down and saw that there were perhaps hoof prints across my sheet of paper. And that somehow there were horsemen in my office and they were making themselves known and they were insistent on my understanding some very fundamental things about them, and that they would really, if I didn't mind terribly, like to be the title. And I'm grateful that I saw that. I'm grateful for the hoof prints, because having the horseman as an organising principle or metaphor is really strong and helpful. Everyone, no matter what their faith tradition, knows who the four horsemen are. They know that they represent great power and great danger. And they might, if they thought about it, and I hadn't, but I have now, understand that what they also represent is ancient danger. The Four Horsemen were, were written over a thousand years ago, but they're relatively simple and clear as concepts or metaphors to understand. And what I came to realise very quickly is that the four categories that I was writing about were the same as the writer of Revelations had chosen when he wrote what is mostly a very crazy long dream over a thousand years ago. And I paid attention to that. If the horseman had, had survived for a thousand years in human imagination, there is a reason why what they represent is so powerful and dangerous. And I, I made sure that I, I stayed with those themes for my analysis. They have great branding, unquestionably, and most of this goes back to a single image created of them just before 1511 when Albrecht Dürer published his great woodcut series of revelations. 
The four horsemen image is, is perhaps the best known of any of them, and it shows them riding together across an obliterated landscape in the dress of their time. Looking at the image that Dürer had made, a lot of things fell into place, including my understanding that what I really wanted to do was show how humanity is seeking to combat the horsemen in our time. And I wanted to find an equally strong organising principle or metaphor to show the line that is being held against the horsemen. I started from the idea that what Dürer is giving us is horsemen who've been brought to a halt and they are looking straight at us. They aren't looking at the landscape that they're going to travel to. They're looking straight at the viewer, straight at the human who is concerned with them, who is supposed to learn from their image. And so I thought about a line being held against them. And then I thought about a line of human beings. And in my early conceptions, they were holding hands although that makes lab work difficult. So I think they're just standing together in great solidarity. And I thought about them as a, as a line that stretches all the way around the world, because it does. It was important to me to show these ancient dangers being met with current practice. This is a book not about what should be done to hold back the horsemen, but it's a book about what is being done to hold back the horsemen, to meet them as individuals, but also to meet them as a company. And the work that's being done now is not only effective for us in our time, in our generation, but if it continues to work, if we are able to consolidate it and build on it, we will secure hope in new ages to come. And so that's what I would add to the Dura print if I could a line of determined human beings around the world, already holding the line, strengthening it every day, and giving us, as became the ultimate subtitle, hope for a new age. I also quickly realised that I wasn't just going to be writing about science. And indeed, the first horseman to appear in the Dura image is the horse that brings war. He's carrying a sword. It's, it's, it's reasonably obvious. Uh, and... War in our time and war in Dura's time are much more similar than political science departments today would have you think. We long ago stopped having the 19th century set piece battles with two discernible sides, a beginning, a middle and an end, and generally a declaration of who it is that's won. War today in the 21st century is, is reminiscent of the wars that Dura's generation would have known of the Hundred Years' Wars, of wars going on, well, for a hundred years, a century for them, decades for us, where civilian populations are considered fair game. In fact, they are considered a primary means of inflicting suffering and defeat, where sides and loyalties shift on a monthly basis, where you have mercenaries and zealots storming across the landscape and using devastation, brutality, starvation and horror as their primary weapons. Millions of civilians are sent out into deserts, either without water and food or, or simply actual geographical deserts for someone hopefully to deal with, but more likely to suffer and die there. In our modern era, we've forgotten the comparisons between wars then and wars now because we had an interlude that I, I've called the first age of humanitarianism. And it began in 1859 at the Battle of Solferino, when the International Committee of the Red Cross 
was formed in principle, uh, although it would take about a decade to get it actually going within a context of international humanitarian law. But there was the idea came that there would be a third force on the battlefield who would represent neither combatant but stand for the fallen, no matter what their uniform or stripe. And we today have thought of this as a way that modern war is slightly better than ancient war because we have neutrality. But it's it's been a relatively short age, and if we were to assign a year when it ended, then we are able to do that. In October 2016, the International Committee of the Red Cross was asked to provide humanitarian aid to civilians fleeing Mosul. An international coalition was engaged in the liberation of the city, and liberations are always the bloodiest part of war. And the International Red Cross looked at the landscape and saw the horror and saw the difficulty of negotiating the third space on the battlefield, and they declined to come. There is no one else who offers their particular skill set in that space. And so the World Health Organization, who were already there, but not there to provide help for wounded civilians, became something that we aren't perhaps aware of them, although we do know a great deal more about them now than we did 18 months ago. They became the provider of last resort. And they sent out a worldwide call to small humanitarian agencies to come to Mosul and to do what they could for the civilians being displaced and battered by the battle and liberation. And with astonishing speed, they came. Small organisations with very qualified people set up trauma stabilisation points along and around the battlefield to help specifically with civilians or indeed anyone wounded who asked for their aid. They were not neutral. They were crowdfunded, they felt strongly that they had to be there, and they worked no matter what. They were protected by a selection of armed forces, and when the battle was over, they packed up and left. This is perhaps a post-neutral world, but whatever it is, it is a new form of neutrality. And we need to work out what it means for the wars as they go forward. We know that it's worked once. It will almost certainly evolve again, but this time it needs to evolve within a more coherent understanding of international humanitarian law. And we look to the International Committee of the Red Cross to provide that. It's not yet forthcoming, but when they do, it will be the second age of humanitarianism begun in October 2016 at Mosul, and we'll see how long it lasts. The second horseman, as Dürer shows him, is the horseman that carries pestilence. And when I very first began this book, most people said to me, are you thinking about swapping out pestilence for something else? Because that seems to be less of an issue in our time. And I had thought back to the original decisions I'd made about respecting the fact that the horsemen were very ancient and very powerful and very much present in the form that they'd originally been conceived. And I said no. Early in 2019, that stopped being a question that I was asked. But the reason wasn't the evolution of the global uh, pandemic of, of COVID. It was because I wanted to write about 
perhaps the most extraordinary threat that we face today. That is the threat of antimicrobial resistance. So bacterial infections for which we can no longer take antibiotics. If we think about the first age of humanitarianism, the, the first age of antibiotics has lasted even less. Uh, it began in around 1950 when uh, we were able to develop Alexander Fleming and Howard Florey's original discoveries to and implement them as treatment throughout, in particular, in the UK NHS. The UK's NHS is very much built upon the discovery and the development of antibiotics. And since 1950, we've all got very used to being able to go to our, our GPs and get antibiotics for whatever ails us, even if it isn't bacterial, or for our infections to be treated in the hospital setting. What I think we're probably also familiar with now is the chest infection that doesn't clear up on the first round of antibiotics or the second, and I always hope will, cover, will um, be cleared up on the third. What we're seeing there, human by human, patient by patient, is the development of bacterial resistance to our, to our treatments for those infections. Bacteria learn very quickly. They learn resistance very quickly. They're much older than us. They've been on our planet for much longer than we have. And they learn resistance very quickly. And we have not yet mastered them in the way of the first age in 1950. In 1950, when the first age began, it was as if it was magic. There was a single thing relatively easy to take in a small packet that you got from a pharmacist and that solved all your problems. And all around the world, that remains the case today. You go to your pharmacist, hopefully with a prescription, and he or she will give you something that will fix you. Unfortunately, a lot of this is done on the internet today, and, and that is a, a tremendous waste of time and a, and a threat to our lives. But the principle is the same. Antibiotics will always save us in the end. We aren't in the first age of antibiotics anymore. We're in the second age of antibiotics, and this is where they don't work very well. The third age is where antibiotics no longer work at all. And it is sincerely to be wished that the third age is characterised by whatever we discover to replace antibiotics. Uh, it will be probably an entirely new treatment paradigm. And we aren't there yet. In fact, we are quite a long way off. And in order for us to secure our lives between the end of the second age and the beginning of the third age, we will need to do a great deal of research. We will need to continue with research and we will need to treat antibiotics as if they are the most precious thing on earth because they are. So it isn't just a question of research in laboratories and the discovery of new treatment paradigms. It's of getting the general population and the medical profession wherever they are, whether it's in the richest or the poorest of countries, to respect the fact that antibiotics are something never, ever to be taken lightly. Because the longer we can take them, the more time we have to discover what it will, what it will take to replace them. So much of my chapter on pestilence was written about antimicrobial resistance and the challenge that it poses to us as patients, to doctors and to researchers seeking an alternative. But of course, during this period, the world experienced an extraordinary pandemic. 
And I didn't want to either have that dominate the chapter or indeed uh, miss it out and miss out the, the really important parts. And when I looked again at the Dürer, I was reminded that the rider who brings pestilence has a bow and arrow and he is firing arrows at his intended victims. And then I thought about the quiver that was carrying these arrows and the range of, of arrows that he can use against humans. And that helped me structure my chapter. Bacterial infection is one of them. In fact, it isn't bacteria specifically. It's the power of the arrows that he can fire at us. Resistance is a superpower that some bacteria now manifest. Many of the arrows that he can fire at us are resistant to how we treat them. But the other arrows come from a similar dimension. They come from the microbiological domain and they are viruses. I think everybody thought that the arrow that he would be firing at us to cause a global pandemic would be a flu arrow. But in fact, it's turned out to be a coronavirus arrow. And the point that I really wanted to make to understand that, the, the part of the line around the world that I wanted to show holding against pestilence, not only begins in our time with the extraordinary work of so many people to hold back this particular horseman, but that began in 2014. And it began with our response to the outbreak of an Ebola epidemic. We did badly at the beginning, but when the world turned its attention to what was happening in Central and West Africa and the emergency that Ebola was, was looking like, tracks of work began, lines around the world began to be built that have gone on to strengthen the line that is currently held against pestilence. And I talk about two particular things in two particular strands of work in particular. The first one is, is epidemiology, which we now are starting to call outbreak analytics. Many of the epidemiologists who've done the scientific work that we've relied on, where we've been led, who have led us with their science, began looking at the Ebola epidemic. And it isn't just that they sat in an office somewhere and looked at the numbers. They went out into the landscape and they understood the emergency, the catastrophe that was being posed for the humans that lived there. But the second thing is probably the obvious thing, and that is the vaccination. When the Ebola epidemic began, we had barely sequenced the gene for the virus. It wasn't something that we were particularly bothered by. And so we knew very little about it. And it was one of the reasons that it spread so quickly. But within 18 months, we had sequenced the gene, we had understood the virus down to its genetic underthings, and we had created a vaccination in 18 months. We have, when I look at the uh, COVID-19 vaccination, done this before. And not only that, but importantly, we've addressed the, the ethical questions about testing, about the time it takes to deliver a vaccine quickly and the balances that we need to have in place between delivering global disease prevention and the ethics of testing, the ethics of compassion, it was called at the time. And everything that we have done now, we did then before in much more difficult circumstances. This is a very strong part of the line that we began to build a decade ago. It's, it's stronger now. And it is to be hoped, and I think reasonably assumed, that by the end of the next time it happens, 
it'll be really strong and quick then. The next horseman is famine. And again, back to the Jura. The horseman who brings famine is carries a, a pair of scales, a set of way scales. And this is a profoundly insightful detail on behalf of both Jura and the original writer of Revelations. And it really resonates for us today. Famine in our time isn't caused by climate change. It isn't caused by anomalies in the weather or seismic activity. It's caused by human activity. Sure and simply, it's people that cause other people to starve. Whether cities are besieged or civil war renders a country in chaos, there is nowhere in the world where there is famine, where there is not also, not very far away, a great deal of food. There's food in warehouses, there's food in, in ships sent by humanitarian aid agencies that aren't allowed to dock in harbours, and there's food on the black market. The people who starve, starve because they don't have the money to buy it. And it isn't just a question of buying food, it's a question of buying the fuel to cook it with, the water to drink with it or cook it in. All of this causes famine. And all of this is caused purely and simply by human activity. The most important people to think about when we come to famine are, it's reasonably obvious, are children. Because famine damages them in ways not just when they are a child, but it will damage their ability to grow into an adult human who may one day step into the line around the world and give us cause for hope. Famine damages not just the height and weight of the child, but it damages their cognitive abilities. So a child that is starved is a child that will do, if they ever get there, less well at school. And they may no never recover that ability. And in particular, it's a child whose immune system is very badly damaged. A child who will catch diseases and not recover from them. And this is where we, when we think about dealing with the horsemen together, in particular, we need to think about famine and pestilence, because the single greatest measure that we can take against them is the same thing. Vaccinations are healthcare systems by other means. They are cheap and we already do them. A vaccinated child is a child who, if famine comes to where they live, is less likely to suffer from illnesses that will exacerbate the effects of hunger. And vaccinations prevent a child who is likely to catch diseases that will have secondary effects that will, will require antibiotics from catching those diseases. When we've done studies since the turn of our millennium, on vaccinated children and the reduction in the use of antibiotics, the figures are staggering. It's 40 to 50% less antibiotics used in populations where vaccination of children is done as well as it can possibly be done. Vaccinations are cheap and we already do them and they are astonishingly effective. Coming back to the principle of the line around the world being held by men and women who are already doing this work. Vaccinations is a very, very strong part of the line. 
We often talk about the sustainable development goals defined by the United Nations, and there are really important ways to think about reducing equalities on our world. But many of them are difficult to achieve, uh, particularly after the endurance of a global pandemic. I'd like to see the first sustainable development goal being something that we already do is cheap and we know how to do it. I'd like to see, as a scientific colleague of mine has once put it, the maximisation of vaccination strategies around the world. A generation of children that has received all the vaccinations that it possibly can is a generation of children with an immune system that can take on the microbiological world is a child that is less likely to require antibiotics and therefore they will lessen, single-handedly, be lessening the burden of resistant bacterial infection on the rest of the world, and is a child that is more able to make a contribution in its own city and family and nation. Many of our problems, the answer is, if in doubt, vaccinate. And it does more than just develop an immune system that can take on the world. A vaccinated child is a child that has a caregiver, of whatever kind they are, prepared to go along and get the vaccination and keep the little card. There's a scientific term for this and it's nurturing. A nurtured child is more likely to be a vaccinated child. And a vaccinated child is a child that truly will directly or indirectly, save our world. And then there's the final horseman, who is perhaps the most famous. Uh, I think there's been books and films called The Pale Rider, and it's death. And death is the one that everybody knows best, but is never quite sure if that's part of, of the four horsemen, because it would appear that death is simply the result of the other three horsemen having their way of a failure by human beings to deal with the effects of the horsemen and human beings dying, and we turn away. But actually, I think death makes a really important point, and a point I think we probably do understand better now, at the, towards the end of the pandemic, uh, than we did before. And that is that we need to focus on death separately, not see it as a failure, but we must reflect on what death means for individual human beings. This isn't just something pandemic specific, where we've understood that our medical students, and this is something we really understand where I work, have received inadequate preparation for them being the, the front, the, the point, the sharp end of the spear in dealing with the death of their patients. We're going to need to reevaluate the training that we offer our medical professionals in regard to futility. And futility is the scientific term for when the final, the fourth horseman, the pale rider, has entered the room and is claiming that human being for themselves. We need to help them, to support them, to undertake that, those decisions and that care of the patient who will not recover, and also to support and care for them, the medical professionals, when they step away from the room and deal with the implications of their work. We understand the pale rider in terms of the delivery of enough wood to crematoria in countries which are having to deal with very large numbers of unplanned for dead. We need to understand that the concept of the mass grave versus the time that an individual requires, but what that would mean for the families left behind. 
The Pale Rider reminds us again of something very ancient. If you go back to Greek tragedies and you think of Antigone and the stand she took to bury her brother, the dead have rights. I think we're in the second age of humanitarianism. And one of the reasons that gives me the greatest hope, paradoxically, in the final section about, about the Pale Rider, is that we now have a well-established tradition and capability for dealing with the humanitarianism for the living. And since 2010, we've had the capacity to deal and, and discover a humanitarianism for the dead. We think about the dead as, pe as people, as humans who have rights. We've added to the Geneva Convention uh, to make that clear. Not just the dead, but the families of the dead who have accepted that there will be no miracle of survival, but who wish to secure something like respect and dignity for those who have died. And beyond the pandemic, that's displaced persons, missing persons, imprisoned persons, anyone who has died and where there is no certainty. We now have humanitarians working with a range of organisations who, who stand in their part of the line around the world for the dead. They seek to establish identity, they seek to establish final resting place, and they seek to communicate that, that clearly to those who need to know that information most. Humanitarian agencies in this part of the second age of humanitarianism have found themselves remarkably accepting of this broadening of their remit. And so I have hope that when we think about something equally complex, about what neutrality is going to mean in our own time, that they'll be able to do that too. I've been asked who my favourite horseman is, and I think probably they were joking, but I found myself giving an answer. My favourite horseman, because I think he requires an extraordinary level of humanity from us, beyond even the efforts of the line being held against the other three. My favourite horseman is, is the horse who brings death. Because if we can look him in the eye, if we can hold the line against him and understand what he means, we also understand that he'll never disappear, but that we can manage him, that we can deal with him and what he means and in the meantime we will all become those survivors amongst us better human beings and the last point I'd like to make is about illustrations when you use an Albrecht Dürer illustration as your keystone for thinking about exploring a subject it means you set a very high standard for the illustrative material in your work those of you who know Sandoz will know the brick wall at the, outside the shop with the ivy hanging down. And in order to make sure that I maintained the kind of standards that Albrecht Dürer set back in 1511, I asked Marjena, a member of the Sandoz staff, if she would do me the honour of taking my author photograph. So this is an opportunity for me to thank you for listening to this podcast and also to thank Marjena for giving me a photograph that makes me feel that I couldn't have had anything better. And it reminds me that as long as we have Sandoz, we will always have hope. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Emily. That was Emily Mayhew talking about her new book, The Four Horsemen, War, 
pestilence, famine, death. It is available from us at John Sandoz for £20, and I feel pretty sure that Emily will sign copies for us. If you would like one, call us on 020-7589-9473 or email sales at johnsando.com. Emily Mayhew, thank you.